This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. Need to satisfy a hungry mind? Every week, Your Brain on Facts brings you science. Why does mint feel cold? History. King Charles II of Spain was so inbred, his family didn't bother educating him. Music. Many hit songs and even entire albums were written for revenge. Technology. The first video game was made on an oscilloscope in 1958. And every other topic under the sun. Look for Your Brain on Facts on your favorite podcast app or at yourbrainonfacts.com. Well, that was Moxie LaBouche from the Your Brain on Facts podcast. And if you've never listened to it before, give it a try. It's very good. Really is very good. I listened to the uh, the one on the history of board games recently and it really does sort of cover a lot of the areas that we've covered and a lot of the time periods and, and civilizations that we've recovered. Very interesting to listen to. Give it a try. This week on the History of the World podcast, we're going to be doing something a little bit different. It's not volume three this week. Instead, it's a special episode and this special episode is on the House of of Vasa. Fundamentally, we are going to be centred on the Scandinavian Peninsula during this episode. And the Scandinavian Peninsula today is where we find the countries of Norway and Sweden. During the 14th century, Norway and Sweden would be linked together by having monarchs from the Ostrogothian House of Bielbo. King Magnus Eriksson of Sweden became the King of Norway and he will be co-ruler with his son Håkon Magnusson. Håkon would marry the daughter of King Valdemar IV of Denmark in a very important political marriage. Her name was Margareta Valdemarsdetter. Sweden split away from Håkon's rule very quickly but the personal union between the kingdoms of Norway and Denmark was firm due to this marriage. Håkon died in 1380 and the Swedish king was deposed in 1389. So Margaret Veldemers of Denmark inherited the throne of Norway and was invited to assume the throne of Sweden by the nobles. Margaret would have to nominate a successor during the next decade and she named Yerik of Pomerania. His coronation as the King of the Three Nations took place at the cathedral in the city of Kalmar and so this political union was called the Kalmar Union. The Kalmar Union survived the 15th century but it was always a precarious arrangement, with many political adversaries in each nation, all with different opinions on what was best for the Union and their own specific countries. 
As the 15th century moved forward, tensions between the countries of the Kalmar Union increased, especially from the Swedish, where there was a strong anti-unionist movement within their political makeup. In the year 1512, a man called Sten Sture the Younger became the regent of Sweden, which was still very much a part of the Kalmar Union. It very quickly became apparent that Sten was anti-unionist and was prepared to fight for Swedish independence. The dominant faction of the Kalmar Union was the Kingdom of Denmark and Christian II became the King of Denmark in 1513. This would make Sten and Christian natural enemies. Christian II of Denmark invaded Sweden in 1520 and on the 19th of January the Battle of Bugesund took place on the icy lake Ossunden. Christian's army, led by the Danish statesman Uta Krumpen, were met by a similar-sized Swedish army led by Sten himself, with the result being a victory for the Danish and the Kalmar Union. Sten was wounded at the battle and roughly two weeks later he died of his injuries. Christian would be crowned the King of Sweden and later in the year Christian had many Swedish anti-unionists executed, accused of heresy in an episode known to history as the Stockholm Bloodbath and earning Christian the name Christian Tyran, Christian the Tyrant. Sten Sture, the younger's corpse, was dug up and symbolically burned. Gustav Eriksson One of the Swedish nobility who was executed during the Stockholm bloodbath was a man called Jerik Johansson, and he was a member of the Vassa noble family. Jerik was likely executed for his loyal support of Sten Sture the Younger and the wider Sture party. The significance of Jerik in particular was his eldest child by his wife, Cecilia Monsdotter Jeka and he was called Gustav Jerikson, and Gustav would have a lasting impact on Swedish history. It was Gustav who started rallying together disgruntled Swedes and taking action against the Danes and the Germans who occupied Swedish property. The rebellion was growing in popularity as more and more people joined its cause. Gustav would spend the first half of 1521 taking control of Swedish cities back from the Danes. In 1523, the Swedish War of Liberation was nearing a conclusion. Swedish residents of the city of Kalmar had allowed Swedish forces to enter and capture the city. In the aftermath of this conquest of Kalmar, 
Gustav Eriksson Vasa was crowned the King of Sweden, ruling as Gustav I, and following the conquest of Stockholm, the Danes had been expelled from Sweden and the Kalmar Union was finished. Before Sweden's secession from the Kalmar Union, one of the Swedish opponents of the Sture Party was the Roman Catholic Archbishop of Uppsala called Gustav Trolle. He was even the man who crowned King Christian II of Denmark as the King of Sweden before the Swedish War of Liberation. When Gustav Jeriksson Vasa became the King of Sweden, he was not comfortable having a Danish sympathiser in such a powerful role, and so he had him replaced. Now this is significant because of what was going on in Europe at the time of all these events in Scandinavia. It was during the 1520s that a priest from the heart of the Holy Roman Empire called Martin Luther wrote an academic discussion which upset the Roman Catholic Pope Leo X. Leo would demand that Luther attend an imperial assembly to present his views, but Luther refused. Leo excommunicated Luther and Luther would start his own autonomous church. Luther's views condemned the imperial nature of the Roman Catholic Church and this appealed to many who lived within the Holy Roman Empire and these would be the people who would protest against Luther's excommunication and so the term Protestantism was born. So there was a wave of popularity for the new modern thinking Lutheran church and so began a huge split between Catholicism and Protestantism. King Gustav I of Sweden replaced the Archbishop Gustav Trolle and in 1531 he replaced him with a man who was the brother of a Lutheran scholar and his name was Laurentius Pietri. The appointment was against papal wishes and so Sweden had now officially become a Lutheran nation, breaking away from the Catholic Church and King Gustav I Vasa is identified as the Swedish king responsible for this major change. Gustav was the first Swedish king from the House of Vasa originally a family of Swedish nobles, now the rulers of the kingdom. Gustav was succeeded by his son Jerik, who became Jerik XIV of Sweden in 1560, and Sweden would now be expanding its borders, with the kingdom covering an area roughly of the modern countries of Sweden and Finland, and now even crossing over the Gulf of Finland into Estonia, which would remain in Swedish hands for 160 years. Johan and Katharina Jerik XIV had a half-brother, also a son of Gustav I, and his particular name was Johan. Johan was given the title Duke of Finland, 
which was a typical title given to particular members of the Swedish royal family. In 1562, Johan would marry the Polish princess Katarina Jagalonica, and this would not be popular with his older brother Jerich, who was in conflict with Poland at the time. Jerich would regard this as typical of Johan's attitude. Johan was a man with his own mind and couldn't care less about the opinion of his brother, the Swedish king, King Jerich Fourteenth. As such, Jerich would deem Johan to be an enemy. Not only was he affiliated with the Polish royal family, but the marriage ceremony was in a Catholic style, going against the Lutheran state religion of Sweden. Jerich would send an army to besiege Turku Castle, the home of his newlywed brother and his wife, and they both were taken back to Sweden as prisoners. They were imprisoned for four years and Katharina was reportedly treated with a lot of respect by her brother-in-law, although she was prevented from practising her Catholic religion. However, Jerich Fourteenth was known for not being completely mentally stable, and while Johan and Katharina were imprisoned, Jerich's mental condition deteriorated. Jerich had always had a poor relationship with the Swedish nobility, and Jerich's mental health would create a very uneasy feeling within the kingdom. Eric's paranoia about the intentions of the nobility, coupled with his erratic mental condition, resulted in the incarceration and the intended execution of a number of nobles. But on the 24th of May 1567, five of the incarcerated nobles were killed by Eric's guard and even by Jerich himself in an event now called the Sture Murders. Eric then reportedly just disappeared into the woods for a few days. Jerich's mental health improved in the coming months, but he was never completely healthy mentally, and with Johan now released from imprisonment, he would be involved in a successful uprising alongside the Swedish nobility against Jerich. Jerich was deposed, and now Johan ruled Sweden as King Johan III or King John III. However, Johan was also reported to be a somewhat paranoid and volatile ruler, and although Jerich survived his deposition, there is a strong suspicion that Jerich's death eight years later was a result of poisoning, and the motive may have been that while he was still alive, he was a threat to Johan's throne. Sigismund and Catholicism While Johan and his wife Katharina were incarcerated by Jerich, Katharina gave birth to a son called Sigismund. Sigismund was educated by Catholic priests and as such would come of age as a devout Catholic. During Sigismund's infancy, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was formed and this was significant because of his mother's heritage. 
When the Polish king, Stefan Batory, died in 1586, Sigismund made a bid for the Polish throne, and his main rival was an Austrian man called Maximilian of Poland. The election was chaotic, with both parties claiming victory for their chosen monarch, and this would escalate into a military conflict called the War of the Polish Succession. It was Maximilian who instigated a military advance against Sigismund Vasa, but it would ultimately end when the pro-Sigismund army pushed Maximilian's forces back to Bichina, where they defeated them at the Battle of Bichina, leaving Sigismund Vasa to take the throne and rule as King Zygmunt III of Poland. So now there were two Vasa dynasties, one in Sweden under Johan III and one in Poland under John's son, Sigismund III. Five years later, Johan III died and the Swedish throne passed to the Polish king Sigmund III, who would rule Sweden as King Sigmund. This was an immediate issue because Sigismund was a devout Catholic and Sweden was a majority Protestant country. So Sigismund would actively be discouraged from imposing any kind of Catholic duty on Sweden and the main opposition was his uncle, another son of King Gustav I, who was called Karl, the Duke of Sodomanland. Karl was a devout Calvinist which was another Protestant form of Christianity, which importantly denied papal relevance in the relationship between man and God. Sigismund was essentially the Polish king. So the political body of Sweden, the Riksdag, nominated Karl as the regent for the kingdom. This appointment was against the will of Sigismund, who recognised Karl as a rival to his throne and this would split the Swedish population, in particularly in Finland, where the peasants rose up against the nobility who were loyal to Sigismund. The nobility put down the uprising and Sigismund officially declared that he did not recognise Kohl as the Swedish regent. Therefore, a separatist movement under Duke Kohl declared a civil war against those loyal to Sigismund who would of course be supported by the Polish. The civil war would culminate at the Battle of Stongebro in 1598, where the separatists under Duke Kohl would score a victory over the official Polish-Swedish Union under Sigismund. Sigismund would have to return to Poland, vowing to pledge to leave Sweden to remain Lutheran. Duke Karl would now be recognised as the ruler of Sweden and five years later the Swedish throne was declared as abdicated by Sigismund, paving the way for Karl to be crowned as Karl IX of Sweden, also called Charles IX. The Thirty Years' War 
The tensions between Catholics and Protestants was not just isolated to Sweden and Poland during this period, but it would be a major and escalating issue throughout the whole of Northern Europe. The death of King Carl IX in 1611 would bring his son, Gustavus Adolphus, to the throne as King Gustav II of Sweden. Gustav II's reign was a very significant one in Swedish history. With his father being a Calvinist, Gustavus was also a Protestant and a protector of the Lutheran Church in Sweden. His father had also been careful to nurture Gustavus's knowledge as a future statesman and had been exposed to military exchanges from a young age. Gustavus was just 16 years of age when he came to the throne in 1611, but he had already developed a great deal of knowledge for a man so young. Gustavus would still have to deal with the problem of his cousin, the Catholic King Sigismund III Vasa of Poland, believing that he was still the rightful King of Sweden during the early years of his reign. Sweden was also a weak nation at the beginning of the 17th century thanks to the political turmoil that it had experienced being sandwiched between the threats of Denmark, Poland and Russia. So Gustavus was very much under pressure to make quick political reforms from the very start. Gustavus would make an agreement of peace with the Danish, subduing his western front and would then put all of Sweden's energy into defeating the Russians during the Ingrian War, so that Sweden could stay in control of the territories surrounding the Baltic Sea, thus denying Russia. Gustavus would then support the Russians in their conflicts against his cousin, Sigismund III, Gustavus's natural enemy in Poland-Lithuania. Gustavus would look to modernise the entire social structure of Sweden. A permanent government would sit in the capital city of Stockholm, with the Riksdag regulating its decisions. Gustavus would ensure that the country's peasantry was not a forgotten class, but he also did enough to support the nobility that this action did not cause civil conflict. Sweden had accepted the Lutheran Church as its national church, so there was no conflict involving the country's clergy. Gustavus also improved the educational establishments of Sweden, investing in the country's future, and he would also allow immigrant workers and businesses a good amount of freedom within Swedish borders, so that the country could develop economically at a quicker rate than its neighbours. Gustavus would therefore be able to set up the structure of a professional army and invest in modern warfare tactics, and so we would see Sweden under Gustavus develop arguably into the most modern country of Europe, with an innovative approach to governance that would inspire other countries to follow its lead and its model in the future. Alongside the modernisation of the army, was also the modernisation of the navy, so that Sweden could have superior command of the trade routes 
of the Baltic Sea. Despite all of this reform, there was never a peaceful resolution between Gustavus and Sigismund, with neither country really gaining an upper hand over the other. King Sigismund III of Poland never wanted to recognise Gustavus as the King of Sweden, regarding him as a usurper. But Gustavus's position in Sweden was firm and popular with the population. So Sigismund knew all too well that an invasion of Swedish territory was futile, as Gustavus had created a highly effective national state that would rally behind him without question, should Sigismund choose to challenge him. The swift development of Sweden was important for another reason, and that is because a wider issue had fallen on Europe as a result of the Reformation and the subsequent Counter-Reformation of the 16th century. By now, many of the nations of Europe had chosen to identify themselves as either Catholic or Protestant in a bid to not only stabilise their national identity, but also to qualify to be in league with each other should tensions escalate between both churches of Europe. And indeed, this happened. When Catholic rulers of Bohemia, a modern region in the Czech Republic, prevented Protestant practices within the kingdom, the Protestants responded by ejecting two Catholic regents from a window of Prague Castle. And this would be the spark that ignited the powder keg of 17th century Europe, spiralling the continent into a conflict retrospectively called the Thirty Years' War, from the year 1618. The main belligerents of the Catholic cause during the Thirty Years' War were the European monarchs from the House of Habsburg, predominantly Austria and Spain, during this period. The Protestants formed from the Lutherans and Calvinists formed an anti-Habsburg evangelical union which initially had successes early in the conflict, but the Habsburgs formed a Catholic league which hit back hard against the anti-Habsburgs, outlawing and destroying Protestant worship and their centres. The general conflict affected many areas of the Holy Roman Empire of Central Europe, and with the anti-Habsburgs suffering defeats, they would need to turn to the wider Protestant community of Europe for support. Alarmed by the threat of Habsburg expansion, Christian IV of Denmark would pledge his support for the anti-Habsburg cause in 1624, and despite Denmark's traditionally frosty relationship with Sweden, Gustavus feared Habsburg expansion also, and so offered support to Christian's stance against them. So now, not only was Sweden in conflict with Poland-Lithuania over the dynastic direction of Sweden's throne, but now they were against each other as a natural proxy of the religious undercurrent of the Thirty Years' War. Denmark was neutralised by the Habsburgs in 1629 and was forced to play no further part in the Thirty Years' War if it wanted to retain its territory. So now Gustavus was in direct conflict with the Habsburgs. And this would be the ultimate test 
of all the reforms that he had put in place to bring Sweden into modernity. Most Protestant states had either been neutralised or feared the Habsburgs, so Sweden was really entering into something quite threatening. Gustavus was quick to remind European Protestants of the atrocities that potentially would befall them if they allowed the Habsburgs to simply walk into their territories and that they should stand up and fight for their cause. The Catholic League, led by Johann Serklas, the Count of Tilly, invaded neutral Saxony in order to approach the Swedes who had crossed the Baltic Sea and were consolidating their position in northern mainland Europe. This would cause the predominantly Lutheran electorate of Saxony to join the Swedish cause against the Catholic League and the Swedish-Saxon alliance won a huge victory at the Battle of Breitenfeld in 1631. The significance of this victory meant that European Protestants started believing that they could stand up against the Catholic League and so they rallied to the Swedish cause more readily. The Habsburg Catholic League clearly had not realised how strong Sweden had become during the reign of Gustavus Adolphus and was forced to completely rethink its entire war strategy. Gustavus's army would meet the Catholic League in battle again the following year on Saxon soil and once again the Protestant Swedish-led army scored a huge victory at the Battle of Lützen. However, this battle is significant because although the Protestants were victorious, Gustavus was caught up in the dense fog and found himself astray behind enemy lines where he would be brutally slaughtered. The legacy of King Gustav II Adolf Vasa of Sweden was huge. Within a couple of years of his death, he was quickly stylized as King Gustavus Adolphus the Great. And this was thanks to his highly advanced social reforms, his effective modernization of national government, his innovative military tactics which harmonized the cavalry alongside the pike and musket infantry, and his popularity as a confident Protestant leader. And it was thanks to him that Sweden would enjoy a period of imperial dominance during the 17th and 18th centuries. Christina Gustavus Adolphus died at the young age of 37 and his heir was his daughter Christina who had not even reached her sixth birthday. Being the only legitimate child of King Gustav II she would be brought up in a very unfeminine manner almost as if Gustavus knew that without a legitimate male heir, he would have to prepare Christina to possibly become the queen. Her regent in her infancy was the trusted Swedish statesman Alex Uxenhörner, the Lord High Chancellor. Uxenhörner 
played a fundamental role in the administrative reforms of King Gustavus Adolphus and is remembered for his contribution towards the progress of Sweden as a nation and an empire. Christina was an academic at heart with a passion for the arts but not a lot of interest in state affairs which may have been a somewhat understandable if Uxenhörner was doing all the heavy lifting and Christina was not being introduced to matters of state as her father had been at a young age by his own father Karl IX. Uxenhörner didn't follow up too much on King Gustavus's success in the Thirty Years' War and ultimately he would come back to Stockholm to concentrate more on domestic affairs and leave the French to spearhead the anti-Habsburg cause in Europe, with Sweden going back to a supporting role. Sweden remained strong and united under the regency of Uxenhörner. As Christina started becoming a grown woman, she would show a side to her that wasn't really in Sweden's best interest, even though she was clearly a woman of sound mind and intellectual thirst. She was somewhat extravagant with her financial attitude towards the arts, gathering extensive book collections and investing in theatrical architecture within palaces. This was not economically responsible for the Swedish state in general. Queen Christina of Sweden declined to marry, much to the dismay of those around her, and this has led to her being perceived as a lesbian icon in more modern times. But there is a possibility that her attitude may not have been dissimilar to that of Queen Elizabeth I of England, in that she didn't feel any necessity to marry. There is no conclusive evidence of her being a lesbian, as much as there is also little to identify her as heterosexual too. Her decision not to marry may possibly be related to another side of Christina, which was her interest in Catholicism. Much as she was brought up in a Lutheran country by a Protestant royal family, Christina decided that Catholicism was her true faith, and due to this feeling at the young age of 27, she decided to abdicate the throne of the Lutheran Kingdom of Sweden. She decided that her true spiritual home was the Catholic city of Rome and that the next monarch of Sweden should be her cousin, the Lutheran Karl Gustaf of the House of Palatinate Zweibrücken, which would signal the end of the House of Vasa being the ruling dynasty of Sweden. Karl Gustaf would rule as Karl X, or Charles X, as he would be known in the English-speaking world. Christina's behaviour has actually led to her being recognised as a historic icon of the Catholic Church and a symbol of the Counter-Reformation. Despite her early abdication, Christina would live a reasonably long life, eventually passing away in Rome in 1689. Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth King Sigismund III of Poland was also a member of the House of Vasa, which became the ruling dynasty of Poland in 1587, as we discovered earlier. 
Sigismund died in 1632, and the crown would initially pass to his son, Władysław IV, Vasa. Both Sigismund and Władysław ruled over a stable kingdom, but when Władysław died without heir in 1648, the throne passed to his half-brother, King Jan II Kazimierz Vasa. In 1655, the new Swedish king, Karl X, invaded and conquered Poland, causing King Jan II to flee into exile. Despite King Jan II being a loyal patriot, he was helpless in defending Poland against the Swedes approaching from across the Baltic seas and lands and the Russians approaching from the east, and so peace treaties had to be negotiated that would see the reinstatement of a considerably reduced Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and an episode of Polish history seen as one of its worst. Rebellion in the Commonwealth led to King Jan II abdicating the throne in 1668 and retiring to France. So now the House of Vasa had become extinct as the royal dynasty of both Sweden and of Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And in both cases, because the monarch in question chose to abdicate. Legacy So the House of Vasa, the subject of this week's episode, had a long and iconic part to play in the early modern history of the country of Sweden. It's also ruled the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for a significant period and also because of this it briefly ruled Russia when King Władysław IV Vasa of Poland was elected briefly as the Tsar of Russia many years before becoming the King of Poland. Descendants of the House of Vasa would become members of the Swedish House of Palatinate Zweibrücken and therefore the subsequent Swedish houses of Hesse and Holstein Gottorp, taking the royal bloodline into the 19th century. Queen Christina came to the throne of Sweden because she was the only legitimate child of King Gustavus Adolphus the Great, with the other child being a son by a mistress. The son was called Gustav Gustafsson, and due to his paternal lineage, he would be ennobled as the head of the Vassaborg family in honour of the Vassa name. The Vassaborg family would be granted Swedish estates in Lower Saxony following Sweden's expansion into Germanic lands. Sweden would lose possession of these territories in the 18th century and the male line of the Vassaborgs died out soon after. This particular special episode of the History of the World podcast has been requested by a close friend of the podcast called Matti Jokimo from Finland. It is on the Finnish coast of the Gulf of Bothnia that a harbour settlement emerged and it would grow until it received its royal charter from King Carl IX of Sweden who we spoke about earlier in the episode. The city would be named after the royal house of Vasa 
and it is one of the largest settlements in the country of Finland today, called Vuasa, a legacy of the Swedish royal house. If we go back to the year 1520 and the story of the Stockholm bloodbath, then this was the story from the very beginning of the episode about Christian the Tyrant, King of Denmark, and how he executed many members of the Swedish nobility, including the father of the future King of Sweden, Gustav Eriksson Vasa. At the time, Gustav was a young man of 24 years of age, and fearing for his life, he fled Stockholm. Gustav fled north and tried to rally the support of the Swedish peasants that he met along the way to stand up against the Kalmar Union and King Christian II of Denmark. After stopping at the village of Mura to rally support, Gustav learned that the Danes were in hot pursuit and so took to his skis and fled west towards Norway. When the Danes reached Mora, the villagers recognised the dangers and sent their best two skiers to chase down Gustav and persuade him to return. They caught up with Gustav in the village of Selen and asked him to come back to Mora to lead them against the Danes. And so Gustav returned and began his successful campaign against the Danes, which ultimately led to him becoming the King of Sweden. The journey from Selen to Mura was celebrated with the creation of the cross-country ski race inaugurated in 1922 and named the Vassalopet or the Vassa race in its anglicised form. The 90 kilometre race is held annually right up until today with over 15,000 participants allowed to take part in what is described as the world's biggest ski race, named after the journey of the first king of the House of Vasa. Well, thank you for listening to this week's special episode. It's the first time we've tried it where we allow one of our patrons to suggest a podcast episode. Fantastic choice of uh, subject. It really was an absolute pleasure to study and write that episode. I really, really enjoyed it. So thank you very much to Matty Yokimo for that wonderful suggestion. Matty is, is quite a humble man, actually, but he's actually producing his own podcast at the moment called The History of Finland podcast but such has been his contribution to the history of the world podcast that I reached out to him to request this episode so it's thanks to Matty's support and generosity to the podcast that he earned the right to have this podcast episode and so a very sincere and personal thank you to you Matty and this is your gift from me. Next week we're going to have another special episode which has also been commissioned by a man who has contributed so much to the success of the History of the World podcast and that man is Nick Barksdale who who runs the YouTube channel The Study of Antiquity and the Middle Ages and you might have heard of him before. He's the one that makes the YouTube videos 
for the History of the World podcast and puts all that fantastic imagery on it and really sort of helps to promote the video format of the podcast. His work is incredible. He's He's got, done so much work. He's got so many subscribers on his channel and I really encourage you to check it out. You could end up... Um, spending the entire afternoon watching his material. It's, it's dangerously addictive. Uh, but he has commissioned a subject of his choosing for the podcast, and that is going to come next week, hopefully, uh, next week. Um, so I'm not going to give too much away, actually. I'll give you a, a couple of clues. The, uh, the time scale of the podcast will be the first millennium. So it's about a... European society that emerged um, at the, um, you know, near the beginning of the first uh, millennium and they disappeared before the end of the first millennium. And uh, they're, well, they're quite close to where I'm based, you know. So, like, but, um, geographically, um, as far as the world's concerned, they're not too far from me. Uh, so there's a few clues there. I'm not going to tell you too much more. I'll, I'll leave you guessing. That's half the fun. Um, but um, for those of you who um, are hoping to get back to the chronological timeline uh, of Volume 3 and uh, are keen to get into the Roman um, historical story, uh, don't worry, that's coming soon. So, um, you know, it, it might be a couple of weeks, but then we'll be starting. We'll be going back to volume three of episode 25 about the emergence of, of Rome. We talk about the, the seven hills and, and Romulus and Remus and all that kind of thing. So um, that is coming, don't worry. Right at the beginning of the episode, you heard from Moxie Labouche, who produces the Your Brain on Facts podcast as i mentioned uh, earlier it's a fantastic podcast she's actually got a book coming out called your brain on flat uh, on facts look out for that i think you can um i think you can pre-order it on amazon if i'm not mistaken i haven't spoken to moxie too much about it but um it's a pleasure to um allow her to uh introduce her podcast to you so be sure to check it out it might be one to add to the collection Right, I'm going to try and be as quick as possible here. There's a few people that I want to tip my hat to. So, um, people who've emailed in, such as Ron Long, who's put your podcast series has been a means to maintain sanity during the pandemic isolation. I'm not a student of history, but I love a narrative story. I'm able to listen at an accelerated 1.5 rate and your accent is easy listening. Thank you. I'm often getting told that people actually listen to me at a faster speed. What's wrong with you? I I, my brains don't. My brain doesn't process information that quickly. I, I have to stay at a, a slower pace, even when I'm, uh, even when I'm writing or or even broadcasting a podcast, I should say. And and when I'm listening to podcasts, I appreciate people who talk a little bit slowly because my 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 brain doesn't just doesn't process information that quickly. So um, I admire you if your brain does. That's uh, fantastic. But thanks for writing in, Ron. Uh, Rebecca Doan, I'm going to guess that her surname's Doan, has put, Hi, Chris, I just wanted to let you know how much I enjoy everything about your podcast. I cringe 
when I read some of the comments on YouTube from unthinking and unfeeling people, I can't even imagine how much work goes into preparing and recording your work. Please know that it is greatly appreciated and enjoyed. Cheers. Um, that's Rebecca from Tucson, Arizona. Thank you, Rebecca. Um, appreciate that comment. YouTube is wonderful, you know. Like if you if you read those comments with the right sense of humour, they're they're very very amusing in actual fact. So uh, I don't really take it to heart. It's it's a it's a pity that people do feel like they have to attack you. It's like the best. Uh, the best uh, way for them to convey their feelings or to for them to uh, express themselves is to <laughs> jump all over other people's work. But, uh, it's, you know, you, you've got to laugh, I think. Another interesting message I received uh, was from Linda Goodrich, um, who put, uh, Chris, I especially enjoyed episode three of your Ancient World podcast about awe an ancient uh, city that has always fascinated me. The opening shot was stunning, an ancient mosaic floor next to the ocean. I wonder if you can tell me its location. I would put it on my bucket list of places to visit. I've travelled to several ancient sites over the years, but have never seen a place quite so striking. Many thanks for all your presentations and for any assistance you can give me. Um, yeah, Linda, I, it took me a while to get back to you on this one. I had to speak to Nick Barksdale at the Study of Antiquity and Middle Ages YouTube channel because he was the one that produced the video. So I wasn't really privy to this uh, piece of footage or where it had come from. So I was reliant on his information. And he told me that the footage comes from Caesarea in Israel. So if you haven't seen the mosaic floors of Caesarea in Israel... It's probably worth a, a little Google of that, and it may be uh, it may be very interesting. It certainly looks quite striking. The imagery in the videos, he's he's got a good eye for uh, what looks attractive, has Nick. Jim McSpirit, an old friend of the podcast, uh, also wrote in putting the Olmecs. So this goes back to Volume Two in and South American uh, or, or Mesoamerican, I should say, cultures. I too have wondered why pyramids showed up in the old and new worlds with no real possible societal connections. It seems that this is an amazing thing, but then I thought, wait a minute. Suppose I had only the most primitive building technologies, mud or stone. How would I build up high for status to reach into the heavens or for defence or to address my subjects? Really, what choices would I have back then? Metals are out of the question and wood wouldn't work either as it would become rickety very quickly with height without better tools and hardware. It's almost a necessity that any high structure end, end up being shaped like some sort of pyramid. The builders have to splay outwards and as height increases since a tower is not possible in those days. A pyramid at its essence is really only a pile of dirt or hill or mountain. It is in fact the most efficient form possible, so anyone with the vision to try to build up would really only have that one choice at that time. So it's simply the most uh, plausible that, that different countries would come across, different cultures would come across this method independently in the old and new world. No other form would have been doable at the time. Um, yeah, sorry, uh, Jim, I, I sort of stumbled across a bit of that. No, no, that's um, that's correct. Um, I think the pyramid is uh, naturally the shape that um, lends itself to uh, the highest 
possible structure. So I think they worked it out pretty quickly that it was um, a dependable, easy structure. I think it was a natural structure. And, um, you know, people were building towers back then. We see the Tower of Jericho, for example, but you really, really couldn't get any kind of height. I think the pyramids had to be sort of spiritual. They were such um, impressive undertakings, I think, that really you have to look at it as there is a real spiritual drive to create these things. You can always build it. You could have always built a tower to address your subjects and that kind of thing, but this was purposeful, you know, in both the old and the new world. In my mind, I might be wrong, Jim, but it was real purposeful, planned, planned to meticulous levels, you know, like really thoroughly planned, you know. It wasn't just like something that someone woke up one morning and thought, let's build a pyramid. Real um, serious planning, and, and let's be honest, they're, they're one of the only things that have survived all those many thousands of years since they were built. So I think, you know, you cannot overcredit these things enough they were really astonishing feats of ancient engineering and there had to be a real like cooperation within that society to pull it off and um you know there aren't that many of these things so it was a real um it was a real expenditure of of human energy in these creations um so Great subject to talk about pyramids, fantastic. And that connection between old and new world is is absolutely fascinating. It's a good message, Jim, thank you. Right, let's quickly catch up. See, I've been quite naughty the last couple of weeks, so I haven't really read out a lot so long. I'm just going to very, very quickly go through the reviews uh, that uh, I don't think that I've read out. Forgive me if I have done any of these. Damn Canadians, Happy Mia via, via Apple Podcast from Canada. I seem to remember a long time ago I was having a I was having a dig at the Canadians for their lack of uh, their lack of reviews, but since then I've uh, they've they've come good for me, so I feel guilty for being so rotten. But um, obviously, Happy Mia heard heard it and put damn Canadians. I'm ashamed for us Canucks that we won't give a guy that spends so much time to bring us a great podcast at least a good review. That just does not sound like us. I think. That we're just being lazy. Come on, Canadians. He's doing a great job and you don't even have to pay for it. If you can't, I will one of these days. When I stop being so lazy. All the best from where the snow just melted. Um, and thanks very much, Happy Mia. Yeah, no, I'm pleased to say that the Canadians have been very generous with their um, with their ratings and reviews. And uh, I'm, I'm very grateful to them all. So thank you. I'm glad um, it's been enjoyed. Um, Erdy Happy from USA has put great job you're doing a fantastic job Chris keep it up that good work it's been a tradition for me to tune in with you when having my lunch or dinner greetings from Texas Um, well thank you I don't know does the podcast come out at lunch or dinner time over there I'm not sure but do you ever listen to it while eating breakfast perhaps I don't know no I'm just being silly I'm just being silly thank you Ernie Happy thanks for the review really appreciate it Uh, Dean Age 76 has uh, reviewed us from New Zealand I don't see many from New Zealand so this is amazing 
Can't stop listening. Fantastic work, Chris. You've nailed it. With the generosity and insight of your everyday approach, you've created an informative and beautifully crafted piece of work which encompasses an impossibly vast period of time. But more importantly, you've made it fun, and that is a skill that dwells in the realms of magic. Obviously, you are a very humble and modest man, but for this, I think you can be rightly proud. Uh, keep up the good work. Uh, cheers, Dean, in New Zealand. Um, well, that's a beautifully written review, actually. I'm quite impressed. It's one of the more beautifully written reviews I've, I've seen, but very complimentary, always very humbled and almost almost embarrassed by how kind some people are with their reviews. But thank you. Um, finally, we've got Jane Maggie Jess from Australia. But thanks. Such a great way to learn. And thanks for all your hard work. Well, look, thank you, everyone. Thank you, all of you, for all of your kindness and generosity and all the time that you spend listening to the podcast and um, everything that you invest in the podcast, whether it just be a review um, or whether it be financial contribution or whether you just take part in any of the interactive stuff on Facebook, Twitter, um, it all counts and it all uh, generates a, like a brand, if you like. The History World podcast, it sort of enhances as a brand and, and more opportunities are hopefully going to uh, come our way in the future. But um, until then, um, you know, life isn't that easy for everyone at the moment. So I wish you all uh, the very best and uh, look forward to speaking to you again this time next week. Hopefully we get to escape the crazy world again for half an hour or an hour um, this time again next week. Until then, be good and we'll speak again soon. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website historyoftheworldpodcast.com You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.